Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Walter Olson, a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. So thank you one and all. This is the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's inauguration, and we're going to devote significant time to evaluating his first year in office. But before we turn to that, I'd like to begin with a little discussion of voting rights, prompted by Walter Olson's excellent piece that he did for the Cato Institute called The Do's and Don'ts of Defending Democracy. And you made a number of points that are worth going over, starting with the fact that you argue that a lot of what both parties are doing is focusing on the trivial or unimportant at the expense of the significant. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Oh, and thanks, Mona, for the kind words. We have just had a long, long season of fighting over voting law, which may or may not be completely over with the refusal of the Senate Act. And I mean, let me start with the Republicans. And even the most moderate and reasonable Republican position places all this emphasis on election integrity, by which they soon begin talking about the dangers of voter fraud. Now, this is one instance where, by and large, the liberal response is pretty accurate, which is, although voter fraud has been a problem at different times in the American past, we're really good at detecting it. There doesn't seem to be very much, and it doesn't seem to be enough volume to make a difference in many elections that anyone cares about. So they will follow that up with measures like voter ID and some others that I think are are perhaps more valuable or important. But let's just leave voter ID hanging there for a moment, because of course, if you listen to the liberal side for the last six months, they paint a picture of voter suppression in which the Republican Party is one big conspiracy against the right to vote, slyly using things like voter ID laws in order to massively suppress minority votes, especially. And once again, this is at best tremendously overblown. And I cite at the beginning of the piece uh, a study that appeared in Quarterly Journal of Economics last year, in which they looked at states with and without voter ID laws, uh, seeing if they could find some correlation to any effect on actual voting. And what they found was as follows. The states with voter ID laws did not seem to be suppressing either voter turnout in general or minority voter turnout. There was no evidence that it was reducing that. But of course, the other side could not crow either because there was no evidence that voter ID laws were reducing fraud. So we've just had a high decibel public screaming match that has seemed to go on for a year or more about something that you just can't detect in the data. Can I just interject really quick to say also that there is widespread support for voter ID laws, even among minority groups in America? Exactly. And the (laughs) polls find that minority groups like the electorate in general likes the idea, doesn't view it as particularly burdensome. 
a related question. Is it too hard or too easy to vote in America? You might think that there was some sort of national consensus that it's too hard to vote. Remarkable numbers of voters, including groups like Hispanics, the, the number one group that might feel difficulty from some of the tightening, say, no, it's too easy to vote. You know, a, a, a position that you just wouldn't know existed at all outside of Republican partisans. Right. Okay. So that was the first part was the fact that we've been having, as you say, these high decibel arguments about things that are fairly trivial. And then you also mentioned the laws that the Republicans have passed at the state level. Yeah, I I will launch in because uh, as you'll see, there are things to worry about that are genuine, but they are not the main things that President Biden, for example, has been going on and on about. I mean, everyone starts with the Georgia law and the Georgia law is a reasonable one to start with because it's kind of typical of what many other states have done. And a lot of what the Georgia legislature did was to retrench somewhat from the tremendous liberalization that the pandemic had brought to remote voting and leaving the state nonetheless in a more liberal position as far as early voting and as far as access to by mail and and drop boxes and so forth, leaving Georgia in a more liberal position than a great many other states, including many northern liberal states. So right there, you get to one of the themes that I talk about, which is that if they are arguing about outcomes that are within the range of what everyone would have considered normal or even liberal a couple of years ago, it's probably not a plot to reimpose Jim Crow. Now, you get to particular details that were, you know, that seized on the the imagination in some of the press, uh, like it's illegal to distribute a water bottle because a water bottle is a thing of value. Once again, it's boring, but if you go compare the law in other states like New York, you know, which put such a law on the books a long time ago, you find very similar language and no particular evidence that the Georgia Republicans were trying to do anything outside the orbit of what a lot of states had done uncontroversially for a long time. Okay, so what are the things, though, that that do concern you? Well, let's go over to the opposite extreme of things that make my hair stand on end, and then we can work our way back from there. Uh, (laughs) In in a number of states, Arizona is the one that has gotten the most publicity. Republican members of the state legislature have filed bills that would try to grab for the state legislature the right to substitute electors of their choice after the election takes place. We're not talking about about the the odd theoretical possibility, which might be constitutional, for them to move away from popular voting by passing a law way before election day saying we're going to choose electors in a new way. We can talk about that, but in practice, the politics would never allow state legislators to deprive people of the vote without fantastic public reaction. But instead, this is the absolute nightmare of what some of the Trumpist forces were trying to do, and they would make an actual Arizona law that they could second-guess the uh, what the voters had done if it didn't come out the way the state legislature liked and put in different electors who had lost or had no relation to any ticket that, that, that was winning. Now, you could comfort yourself by saying that this is an illegal thing for Arizona to do. So even if somehow they tried it, it wouldn't actually stand up under a court challenge. I don't find it that comforting because as I say, my hair stands on end that they're trying to do this sort of nonsense in the first place. Fortunately, yeah. it's not that many of them. Uh, you know, It only takes one backbencher. And I guess they had a few more than one, but they didn't have anywhere near enough to be a majority, even of the Republicans, let alone a majority of of either house. 
of the Arizona legislature. And that's generally the way it's been. You can find sometimes a cluster of Republican state legislators who, to me, are absolutely out of their gourd on the sort of issues that obsessed the nation between last November and January. Uh, Pennsylvania had as many as a couple of dozen. Fortunately, the Pennsylvania legislature has lots and lots and lots of members. So they were, again, uh, not in any danger of taking over even their caucus in the lower house of the Pennsylvania legislature. But it is worrisome, and it should bother us that that kind of extraordinarily radical and break with what we've accepted to be democratic norms would get even that much of a foothold. That having been said, those bills went nowhere. And it annoys me a lot when the press takes what I see as the lazy way into this issue of taking the surveys from the Brennan Center of how many states have uh, bills introduced that would restrict voting. Now, by restricting voting, those Brennan Center surveys include everything from that Arizona monstrosity to a state moving to two weeks of early voting instead of three weeks of early voting. They call that restricting the vote too, even if the state had never had early voting before the pandemic. So you can see why advocates do it is because advocates enjoy keeping people alarmed, alarmed, alarmed all the time. But on the other hand, we should try to be distinguishing the genuine threats from the uh, no big deal shuffling of laws back and forth that you would expect to go on anyway. Yeah, I, I want to bring Linda into this. Linda, I I completely agree with Walter's point about the Brennan Center. I mean, there are some great people there. I love them. But but I, too, sort of combed over their list of laws that they were defining as restricting the access to vote. And that's just a misrepresentation, in my judgment, of what was going on. If they reformed in any way the very latitudinarian rules of the pandemic year, that was held to be restricting voting access or even voter suppression, which is a huge misrepresentation And that's exactly right, Mona. And, you know, moreover, what's really unfortunate is the media, whom I really criticize for not so much political bias, is simple laziness, Mm -hmm. not bothering to actually go and read these laws. I mean, so much was made about the Georgia law and not allowing water to be passed out by, you know, election volunteers or people who represented organizations. Well, uh, look, it turns out that many states do not allow people to hand out things to people who are standing in line to vote. I mean, I remember back when I ran in the state of Maryland, there was an old tradition of you know, actually passing out uh, what's called walking around money in mm-hmm. the state of Maryland. People were also given little hand cards that would tell them how to vote. And those sometimes would be passed out by people, you know, who are members of their church or members of their community groups. And of course, that was a way of improperly influencing people. So the idea that you don't want willy nilly anybody to be able to go out and and accost people who are standing in line waiting to vote, there's nothing wrong with that. There was nothing that prevented an organization that wanted to make sure there was water available when there were long lines for to giving that to the election workers themselves and letting them pass it out. Nothing wrong with them passing it out. It was trying to use giving something of value to a voter to try to influence their vote. So that is part of the problem. And the media has been so quick to 
amplify these charges of voter suppression. I mean, you would think, and certainly we talked about this, I think, last week with Joe Biden and his speech down in Georgia, this this idea that we're going back to Jim Crow in the state of Georgia, is it's an insult. In fact, there were significant barriers to voting. In the state of Mississippi, if you were Black and tried to register to vote, you had to be able to, to give answers to absolutely unfathomable questions, like how many bubbles are there in a bar of ivory soap? Or you know, recite uh, the entire Declaration of Independence right, from beginning for, to end, right? Yeah, right. I mean, there were just all sorts of, of barriers. We're not in that place now. And there are many places in the Deep South, I've said this before, where there's actually higher black registration than white registration in some of those very jurisdictions that were covered by the original provisions of the Voting Rights Act. So it's really malpractice when the media doesn't do its homework, presents these things in these hysterical forms, and basically riles people up to think that we are in the midst of the Ku Klux Klan running our voting systems in in places around the country. It doesn't help our cause. Yeah. The boy who cried wolf problem. Yes. <laughs> Bill Galston, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that some of these laws about not giving anything of value to people in line to vote was a response, sort of progressive era reform to the earlier practice, which included handing out drinks. George Washington used to hand out drinks to voters when he was mm-hmm. running. Uh, that was that was well, the way he, it was done. He, he was no fool. <laughs> <laughs> He actually had a distillery at Mount Vernon, which you can still visit to this very day. But anyway, so those things, there there really was a lot of hysteria on the left about those things. And unfortunately, President Biden, in his wide-ranging press conference, seemed to cast doubt on the election integrity coming up in 2022, the exact thing that we rely on responsible officials not to do. He was asked point blank whether he was saying that he would not trust the outcome of 2022's elections. And he said if the Democrats' voting reforms didn't pass, that yes, it does call the legitimacy of these elections into doubt. Well, first of all, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to listen to Walter Olson, whose antique belief in evidence-based public policy discussions uh, (laughs) is conspicuous by its rarity. And uh, thank you. I just wish we could clone you and dispatch you hither, thither, and yon, because (laughs) the quality of our discussion would be remarkably enhanced. You know, secondly, I want to reinforce and expand on something Walter said. If you think about it, there are really three stages of the electoral system and therefore three potential problem areas. Stage one is everything leading up to the actual counting of the votes, everything that has to do with the act of voting itself. Stage two is what happens in the states after the votes have been cast. And stage three is what happens in Washington, D.C. on January 6th uh, of the year following a presidential election when the results from the states have to be opened and certified. And I would argue that we have been shouting loudly 
about the least problematic of those three areas. I think Walter is absolutely correct to focus on the kinds of problems, the set of problems represented by this cockamamie Arizona scheme. And then third, as we saw on January 6th, there are gaping holes and ambiguities in federal legislation dealing with the process of certifying the electoral vote in Washington, D.C. And if we focused on where the real and most serious problems are, namely stages two and three, that would lead us straight to a conversation about reforming the Electoral Count Act, which I guess everybody knows by now was enacted into law in 1887 to deal belatedly with the problems that cropped up in the election of 1876, which was the second most contested election in American history. So there is a bipartisan discussion starting, especially in the U.S. Senate, and it would be terrific if President Biden went all in to encourage that bipartisan discussion, as he hinted in his press conference that he might. Right. So Damon Linker, we, I think, are all agreed that some of the hand-waving and scaremongering about some of what is happening in Republican legislatures around the country is much overstated. At the same time, there are a bunch of other things going on that lead you to say, hey, uh, GOP, you're not doing much to calm things down. So, for example, in local Republican groups around the country, people who did their jobs in 2020, who stood in the breach, who refused to cave to the pressure of the president and his minions to alter the votes or who refused to find 11,780 votes in, in Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those people are being purged. They're either being removed from their positions or they're being primaried or they're being censured by local GOP groups. So that's happening. And then in Florida, which by the way, had a great electoral system and counted all of its absentee ballots before election night, which was one of the reasons it was able to deliver results so quickly. But anyway, uh, Ron DeSantis is now asking the GOP-controlled legislature to allocate $6 million to hire 52 people who will be a new police force to enforce election laws. They would be stationed at unspecified field offices throughout the state and act on tips from government officials or any other person to investigate, detect, apprehend, and arrest anyone for an alleged violation of election laws. Yeah, so. it, yeah, it's it, that's quite something. Now, it, the weird thing that that makes it hard to evaluate that kind of stuff is that our politics now, especially among Republicans, is so much a synthesis of regular politics and then kind of three-ring circus entertainment that when a politician, even one as high profile as Ron DeSantis. When someone like that makes an announcement like this, you never know, is this serious? Is this actually something that they're going to try to enact? Are they going to go through the process of figuring out whether it's legal, whether there's any chance it'll hold up in court? Is it constitutional? How would this actually work? Would it be bipartisan or simply change hands when the state legislature and the governor's mansion switch parties? All of these kind of technical questions that are part of 
of enacting legislation or regulations. And you don't know if it's just meant kind of for Fox News fodder and it will be forgotten and never actually moved on. So I want to actually see what this proposal amounts to in real life. But even if it never comes to anything, that's a, a pretty severe indictment of this way of doing politics, where it's less about actually enacting legislation or regulations, but so much as making a kind of flamboyant show to show that you're owning the other side. The motive can be even more than protecting elections. It can be a kind of dangling red cape in front of the left to kind of own the liberals, get the progressives to go bonkers and scream and yell about it. And then the the right can sit there and kind of giggle under its breath. Uh, It's a kind of uh, fifth grade performance art where like everyone stands around laughing Mm -hmm. at the the kid in class getting a wedgie or something. It's about at that level of seriousness. So I, you've just described American politics. Yes, exactly. In our time, yes, I actually cribbed <laughs> that from a tweet from uh, Kat Rosenfeld, a novelist who's on Twitter and I like a lot. Uh, and I do think that that gets at a lot of what Republican politics has become, and of course driven by the example of Donald Trump. And that's the other dimension to it. Like, is this just DeSantis trying to? get Trump to stop attacking him for a few days. Like, oh, I guess he's serious about stopping the steal going forward. So I won't bash him for another couple of days like Trump has been doing over the last week. So, I mean, I I would certainly prefer as, uh, Bill said quite rightly about Walter Olson's conversation and the level of seriousness with which he's looked at these questions. That really should be the standard for public discussion of these issues, far more than what we've been hearing out of Congress this last week. But you have the kind of hysteria of the left that we've heard a lot of, and unfortunately from the president's mouth itself recently. Mm -hmm. But then you have a kind of like even order of magnitude more insane tendency on the right to just sort of go through these backflips of uh, hysteria and anger and hyperbole and to even make proposals like this one that sounds like a kind of sunshine state Gestapo for the elections. It's a very, it's it's a very strange thing. And again, I'm not actually going to say it's like the Gestapo because I don't know what the heck this would be. Is there any precedent for something like this that it's modeled on? uh, Or is this just DeSantis and his political team sitting around wondering, what can we do to, to get Trump to back down and kind of get me a lot of hits on right-wing social media sites. I mean, who knows? Those are the motives we're talking about these days. Yeah. I think another image one could use about the way Republicans do politics is they like to pull the graphite rods out of the reactor for fun sometimes just to see what'll happen. (laughs) (laughs) Meltdown. Um, So while I return to you for the last point here. There are things that you think ought to be done, though, right? You're not saying there's no problem. Here. Oh, for sure. And yeah. Bill, of course, brought up the Electoral Conduct, which is very much something that I and a couple of colleagues at Cato have been deeply involved in in recent weeks. There are a lot of good signs in Congress. And I found myself praising a staff report a couple of days ago from the House Administration Committee majority, i.e. Democrats, uh, something that I don't customarily do on a lot of domestic issues. But a lot of good people are finding that they have a lot of common ground on electoral counteract reform. So that's one big thing. I 
share the concern about an issue that you brought up, Mona, about the replacement of honest and courageous people in the chain of command that reports election results with people who it is hoped will be more partisan or more pliant or more whatever. For various reasons, I think this is worth worrying about, but doesn't have all that obvious a solution. In particular, the federal bill that was just considered would have introduced a federal right to sue for dismissal without just cause, leaving aside the fact that this is already the standard that Georgia introduced in its own controversial bill. As one who has written a whole book about the uh, workplace litigation, how it tends to entrench sometimes problem workers who can use their legal rights to stay on the job a year or two longer than they should have, I worry that rather than protecting honest county officials against rogue state governments, this proposed federal bill would just as often protect rogue county administrators against honest state governments. Mm. It's very hard to craft one that doesn't have those unintended effects. I agree that we should be watching those elections, watching those attempts to kick people out of politics. But at the same time, this is part of the problem that is hardest to touch because it is itself democracy. Yeah. Okay. Well said. Yeah. I do think, though, it's it's important to keep an eye on it, as you say, and at least use some level of social shaming if that's exactly. possible. Yeah. yeah. And support the, the people like uh, Stephen Richard, the Maricopa County recorder in Arizona, who have yes. uh, taken such risks personally in order to stand up for the right. Yes, absolutely right. Okay. We will now turn to the next topic. So it is uh, one year since President Biden took the oath of office and gave a very uh, unifying inaugural address. In fact, he stressed unity many, many times. And so now we have come out of our first year, well, arguably as disunited as ever. But let's just start with a few things that are going right. And Bill Galston, I'm going to come to you on this. 6.5 million more Americans are employed today than when Biden took office. Wages are up 5%. Uh, The unemployment rate is down. Some of that might have happened without him, but uh, presidents get credit or blame whether they deserve it or not. So unemployment is under 4%, which is uh, amazing, multi-year low. And GDP growth is expected to be very robust, probably the best since 1984. So I'm going to ask you, Bill, whether President Biden has um, a messaging problem, at least regarding some of the good news that he could be touting. Whenever I hear the phrase messaging problem, I reach for my analytical gun uh, <laughs> because my experience in in politics that extends through three presidential campaigns and one presidential administration is that messaging is almost always substituted as an explanation and a recommendation for what are really the underlying problems with either a campaign or an administration. And the problem on the economic front is that inflation is like a supernova that has blotted out all of the other sources of light, right? It affects everyone. I think we should remember that Unemployment reaches a small fraction of the population. Inflation touches everyone. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when the American people right now are asked, which is the more important economic problem, unemployment or inflation, they say inflation, depending on the specific group you're looking at, by three to one or even four to one. And until inflation is under control, I think the president is going to have a hard time selling the American people on the advantages of his economic program. And unfortunately, it is going to be very easy for his opponents to link the elevated level of inflation to the elevated level of spending, even though if you talk to economists, uh, the explanation for high inflation is much more complicated than that. And so whenever someone says the president is having a messaging problem, the first question should be, are you sure it's not a substance problem? And in this case, it is. And the president may view it as cosmically unfair that a portion of the economy that's going badly is wiping out the public's experience of the portion of the economy that is going well. But many presidents have had occasion to reflect that life isn't fair. That's the way it is. And if you're old enough to remember the inflationary period of the late 70s through the mid-1980s, which I am, it is politics 101 that when inflation gets out of control, it's like a noxious gas that invades the rest of your administration. And so he's going to have to figure out something better to do about inflation. And then he's going to have to be out there showing commitment, visiting ports, talking to truckers about how more truckers can be recruited to begin to fill some of this 80,000 member trucker gap that the American Trucking Association has identified. Okay, Linda, I'm going to be President Biden's advocate for a second here and point out that, you know, inflation is a global phenomenon. Uh, Europe is having the highest inflation it's had in decades. The OECD reports that it's having very, very high inflation rates compared with recent years. And, you know, while the Republicans are saying that it's entirely the result of Joe Biden's socialist tax and spend policies, the truth is, and by the way, I I do think he bears some responsibility because I think the American Rescue Plan was way too big and, and completely overdrawn compared with the challenge at that moment. I mean, they passed that. So there had been $3 trillion of COVID relief enacted under the Trump administration. And then Biden came in and they passed another $1.9 trillion. Now, not all of that is spent right away. And in fact, some of it's not spent at all. And that's a whole other story. But to blame Biden for the inflation seems to me, you know, Bill said it's cosmically unfair. Well, it's it's in addition to that, it's it's absolutely not his doing, really. I mean, you could say he has some measure of blame for the American Rescue Plan, but that was just a part of the overall picture. And it doesn't even take into account the fact that over the last 15 years, since the end of the roughly 15, since the end of the financial crisis, the Fed has been sloshing money into the economy like crazy. So if inflation is is a monetary phenomenon. There you go. We set the stage for it and it wasn't Biden. Well, you're right about that. I mean, one of the things about the American economy that I think a lot of voters miss is that the American economy is too big and too complex 
for a president to have any kind of huge effect on that economy. There are lots of forces at work. And as you rightly say, inflation is not a problem just here in the United States, but elsewhere. Certainly, the demand for goods, the shortage of distribution of goods, the shortage of being able to produce the goods that are caused uh, by the COVID pandemic has certainly played a role in all of that. And so I don't think that a president should get all the credit when you have a great and thriving economy, nor should he or she take all the blame when the economy goes sour. That having been said, I do think that the administration's desire to sort of just pump more money into an already somewhat overheated economy has not been helpful. And certainly, you know, as we've talked about ad nauseum on the program, the Build Back Better Act, uh, some of us were quite skeptical about whether that was a wise idea, particularly at this point in our uh, economic cycle. There are some things, though, that I think the president could be doing to focus more clearly on things that might help. Obviously, the Fed has a role, and apparently they are going to raise interest rates. Maybe they're going to raise it three times, maybe four times in the coming months. Uh, That may have some role in sort of tamping down uh, inflation. But the problem of a declining labor force and people who are opting out of the labor force has, you know, a kind of perverse inflationary effect on the market. Because if you have jobs and people aren't willing to take them, obviously, one of the ways you get people to take the jobs you have is to increase uh, wages to make them more attractive. So doing something about our labor supply is something that, you know, I think would be helpful. And of course, my favorite (laughs) come to uh, solution on that problem is to try to make it possible for more workers to come to the United States and do that either temporarily or on a permanent basis through changes in our immigration law. So, you know, that is one of the things he could do. And I absolutely agree with Bill on the point about communication not being the explanation for Biden's problem. I do think he's had a problem in his staffing. I don't think Ron Klain has served him as well as many chiefs of staff have served presidents uh, in prior administrations. It does not seem to me that his White House, uh, Biden's White House, is as well-oiled a factory uh, as it ought to be. And so I do think that there are some things he could do short of major policy changes that might improve the focus of the White House, not having them jump wildly from from one thing to the other, focusing on things like the voting rights uh, bill, which while it did have a lot of popular appeal in the black community, was not something that Americans were clamoring for. The bill itself was not something that I think was going to make a huge difference in, in our elections. So, you know, having a more disciplined approach, sitting down and figuring out what are the two or three things that they can accomplish, that they should be focused on for the coming year, I think would be very helpful to him. Uh, Walter Olson, one thing that the president does have in his arsenal that he hasn't seemed very eager to uh, deploy is he can cut tariffs, a tax on the American consumer. Would that be a good inflation fighting move? It would certainly offer a way to go after 
some visible prices for some goods, particularly if you present it in the right way. My colleague Scott Lincecum at Cato has pointed out that trade barriers also affect the actual shipping flow in various ways, sometimes because of the Jones Act, sometimes because of other uh, constraints. And at a point where everyone realizes that that bottleneck of ships waiting outside Los Angeles, Long Beach may have kept you from getting your, your holiday presents on time, simply getting government obstacles out of the way, of which some are definitely trade obstacles, would be a potential political winner, I think. Damon, in uh, January of 2021, Biden won uh, independence by a 13-point margin. Um, According to recent polling, um, he has lost more support among independents than among any other group. Well, not surprising, but uh, he's down now to only about... uh, 33% 33% support from, from 50%. Um, if, if he doesn't win independents, who are, by the way, the biggest percentage of Americans identify as independents, not as Democrats or Republicans, uh, he's, he's in bad shape and the Democratic Party is in very, very bad shape. So if you were Ron Klain, First of all, if you have any thoughts on things he could do to fight inflation, love to hear them. But also respond, if you would, to Linda's suggestion that uh, that he does need some better advising that that his team hasn't hasn't served him well. Yeah, I, I will. I will talk about that because I think that is right. I think uh, Biden's loss of independence uh, is is a big problem of the independent voters, and that that has a lot to do. That flows very much from the kind of overabundance of activist rhetoric. Uh, you know, Ron Klain on Twitter is constantly retweeting kind of progressive activist types and more left leaning journalists, and it, it, he might just be doing that as a distraction, but it also might be a kind of glimpse into his mind and his thinking and about what matters, because certainly the behavior and rhetoric coming out from the administration would seem to back that up. But before I loop back to that at the end as part of some general advice, I did want to kind of jump into this question about why Biden seems to be sort of floundering here after a first year. And obviously, inflation is part of it. I would also say, though, that my analysis of it is that it's something bigger than that with inflation as just part. If you look at the public opinion polls and approval rating for Biden, you see very clearly when the slide, and really it was more like a, a, a jump off of a cliff, began. And it was with the, the kind of hapless withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, I don't think that's the reason why he has slipped. But what that represented was the first in a series of examples where it appeared as if the administration, which had promised competence and kind of a laser focus on the good of the country as a whole after the divisiveness and incompetence of Trump. It was the first of many examples of the administration seeming to be blindsided by events. So you had the Afghanistan announced it, which was announced months earlier. And Biden said, oh, we'll we'll get out. It'll be clean. We'll do a good job of this. And instead, government collapsed and the Taliban took over and we left in a kind of chaotic mess with a big terrorist attack at the airport. So that's bad. And that started the slide. Then over the coming months, we had, yes, inflation and supply chain issues leading shelves and stores to be half stocked and the very nice rise in wages 
wages that you mentioned at the top of the segment, Mona, getting eaten up and actually erased by inflation so that people are, in effect, not getting wage raises. They're actually earning less for the dollar than they were before. You had first the Delta wave of COVID-19 and now the Omicron wave after Biden announced in July that we were declaring independence from the virus. Uh, And then you've also had surging crime, which the Democrats don't want to talk about, but I think a lot of people are very much aware of. And then finally, in the background, the fact that the Democratic-controlled Congress has been spending months and months debating and fighting amongst themselves over the Build Back Better Act and now the, the Voting Rights Act, which Biden went out of his way over the last week to tie himself to by delivering speeches in defense of the passage of the Voting Rights Act when it was clear to every observer who knew what they were talking about that it was not going to pass and uh, getting rid of the filibuster wasn't going to happen either. And you put it all together and that looks a little bit like a White House that is, again, blindsided by events constantly knocked off its stride and kind of scrambling to pick up the pieces after things come and kind of overturn the table. So now, how how is he supposed to respond to that? Well, that's hard. Uh, I mean, I, I have a brief list of a few things. One, turn down the activist rhetoric. Just stop talking like you're a left-wing activist. You're the president of the United States. You ran in order to represent the country as a whole and the common good and to unify the country. Now, he's never going to be able to unify the country because we are very divided, but he can try. And claiming that that, for instance, as he did in his remarks earlier this week, that if if the voting rights bill doesn't pass, which by now it has not, that means that the results of the 2022 midterm elections are illegitimate. That's Trumpian rhetoric. Don't talk like that. That's irresponsible. It, it, I don't see what it could possibly accomplish. Again, especially when it's put there as kind of jet fuel under a push for the voting rights bill to pass, when which they should have realized was not going to happen anyway, so it was futile. Second, make as many bipartisan deals as you possibly can. I mean, one thing Matthew Iglesias points out in a good uh, New York Times op-ed on Thursday this week is that the Senate has actually passed something called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. This was also a version of this bill has also passed the House, and there is currently a conference committee working on reconciling the two bills. Did we even realize there were conference committees anymore? This is a good thing. This is this is a, the two parties and the Houses of Congress trying to work together to pass a, a bill. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but there's good stuff in that bill. It, it Part of it addresses supply chain problems that are related to inflation. So first of all, encourage that and other things like it. And when they do pass, really make a big deal about them, hug them, give speeches talking about them. And a a small issue, uh, additionally, to the White House and how it's run. Why does every time Biden gives a speech or has a press conference, he holds it at 2 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon when nobody's watching? Why not? I don't think they want people to watch. Well, that's the problem. He should. (laughs) Why not? I mean, why did he give a two-hour press conference this week on Wednesday on the very day that the Voting Rights Act was going down to defeat before it went down to defeat so that not only no one would watch it, but then the news of the press conference would end up getting covered 
covered over by the bad news about the failure of the bill. So, you know, pass some bipartisan legislation like the infrastructure bill that did pass, like the this Innovation and Competition Act, and then give a primetime speech about why it's important and why it's good. And then the last point um, on that list of things that seem to keep blindsiding the administration, it might be a difficult time during which to be president, but one way that you can try to forestall and mitigate the problem of looking blindsided is that when an event happens that isn't good for the country or the administration, you take a few days and quietly figure out what your response is going to be, have a plan, and then come out of the gate with guns blazing on it and make it seem like you know exactly what you're going to do and you talk about it all the time. That's all the American people need to see, that you're in control, that you have a plan, and that you're working for them. So I, I hope that, you know, they'll hire me as a consultant or something and I can get you know. I think they would be very well advised to do that. Well, I think That's that uh, they'd have a much more successful second year if they were to hire Damon Linker. I, I like to think so. We'll see. Yes, I'm, I'm sure of it. Okay. We will now turn to our third and final segment. All right. We now come to that part of the podcast that you've all been waiting for, our highlights or lowlights of the week. And I'm going to start with Linda Chavez. Well, listen to Wally Olson's uh, opening remarks in the question from you at the beginning of the podcast. And I was patting myself on the back because of the uh, selection that I made today. It's actually called The Reactionary Trap. It's from uh, Substack, the online publication Persuasion, and it's written by Seth Moskowitz. And in it, he talks about reactionaryism, not just on the right. You know, we think of reactionaries and we think of the right, but he talks about a kind of reactionary personality on the left. And he identifies two characteristics. One is becoming so preoccupied with who or what they're against that they forget about first principles or reason. And secondly, that they vastly inflate the threat of whatever it is that they oppose and they drive uh, responses that are totally disproportionate to the scale of the harms they critique. And I think that's exactly what we've seen uh, on the left on the Voting Rights Act. So uh, I recommend this article. I thought it was uh, very thoughtful and very even-handed and really did a great job talking about uh, how it is that even progressives can become reactionary. Great. Uh, Yasha Monk has done a great job in creating persuasion. It's got a lot of Really good stuff. Wally Olson. I don't know whether this is too much of a departure because it's not really a policy thing, but one of America's great writers died this week, namely my friend Terry Teachout. Uh. And many of you, I, I'm sure, knew of his work or knew him personally. I could refer to the very good New York Times obituary by Clay Risen uh, for those who don't know his work. But of course, I'd rather cite a piece by Terry himself. Uh, can't be a current one. So I'll cite one from 2012. You can look it up on the web. Uh, it is 15 Commandments of a Reviewer. And uh, of course, Terry made his bread and butter work of, of reviewing art of all sorts, from theater to classical music to jazz. And um, it is lessons to live by if you are uh, judging other people's work. I won't try to quote more than a couple of them, but they include always treat artists with respect. Most of them know how to do something you can't do. 
always remember that a performance is a news event. Be specific, pay attention. If it's a book, say what it was about and quote it at least once. If it's a painting, say how big it is. If it's an opera, say how long it lasted, wear a watch. Uh, and you know, you, you, you get a little window here into a writer who was always looking for talent, always trying to connect people with works and, and artists that they would love. And everyone loved Terry. If you haven't discovered him, go out and start reading him. Thank you so much. Bill Galston. I'm going to cite an article in a magazine I rarely crack because it annoys me so much these days, namely the new criterion, because (laughs) it features this week an article and a symposium responding to the article written by Kim Holmes, who served in the Bush administration and was the executive vice president of the Heritage Foundation. And Holmes writes a critique of national conservatism from the Reaganite point of view. It's extremely thoughtful, and it's entitled The Fallacies of the Common Good, just to go straight to the heart of Catholic Mm -hmm. conservatism in this new critique of Reaganism. And let me just read a sentence or two from the beginning. Anyone observing the evolution of conservative thought over the past few years could not have escaped a growing trend. Politicians, intellectuals, and think tankers are questioning traditional American conservatism's commitment to limited government, individual natural rights, and economic freedom. They're talking up instead the virtues of the common good in ways that call into question their commitments to liberty and freedom. Uh, And it goes on from there in a very calm, analytical, but intellectually sharp way, and I commend it. That's really interesting. And I must say, I'm a bit surprised that they're running it, considering the views of their editor. But uh, but that's good. Correct. You know, but they also run seven critics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so. I know. Well, one of those critics is Jay Nordlinger, who's one of my dearest friends, and he's a great music critic. Um, so it's worth reading for him. All right. Damon Linker. Uh, yeah, I'm going to uh, do what I do periodically here on the uh, the show and point to, uh, yet again, a Substack, but uh, by someone people uh, listening to the show may not have heard of before. There are lots of wild and crazy different kinds of people on Substack. This is a, a, a guy named Jeff Maurer, who is a former senior writer for uh, the John Oliver show. And that is, of course, a kind of comedy news show. And his Substack is quite amusing. Also a little vulgar, so, you know, not safe for work necessarily. Uh, The piece I'm going to highlight is titled, Let's Honor MLK's Birthday by Being Impotent and Embarrassing. Subtitled, (laughs) So Reads the Memo I Assume Went Out to Progressive Activists. Um, And it's basically about what uh, we talked about in the first segment of the show today and that uh, Walter Olson did such a nice job talking about. Uh, Pretty much, Maurer, I think, agrees with much of what uh, Walter had to say, but he presents it as a progressive speaking to his fellow progressives and in a way that sort of 
mocks the the again the the really over the top hyperbole of a lot of their claims about uh, you know Jim Crow 2.0 and so forth and and this is really an important thing. I mean, it's enjoyable to read for its own sake, so I encourage you to do so. But it's it's important because, like uh, Matt Iglesias, who I mentioned earlier, and and some other prominent center left writers out there these days, uh, they are very much Democrats, very much pro Biden, and yet they look at some of what is coming out of the center left these days, shake their heads, and just say, "What what are you doing?" <laughs> Uh, please get get a grip and stop speaking like we're about five minutes from the end of the world, because if you keep doing that, the people we need to appeal to might just run the other way. And that will, uh, in that way, end up a pretty self-fulfilling prophecy on that very fear. So I recommend uh, Jeff Maurer's Substack in general and this item in particular. And everyone, you should take to heart the suggestions that come from the next senior advisor to President Biden, Damon Linker. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also read Jeff Maurer this week, by the way, and I I saw it referenced and I flipped over and I began reading it and I started laughing and I thought, wait a minute, this is this is no ordinary political writer. And then I realized, oh, he's a, he's a comedy writer, but he's very, very substantive. So uh, so I, I agree. He's, he's good. I mean, at least that one piece that I read by him was very funny and pointed. All right. Uh, I have two things I'll quickly mention. One is also a uh, substack. It's our friend Matt Iglesias, whose substack is titled Slow Boring, which is a play on words. But this particular entry was about the false trap, in quotes, of bipartisanship, where he's warning against the people like Mark Elias, a big uh, election lawyer for the Democrats, who is saying, you know, the beware the trap of cooperating with the Republicans on the Electoral Count Act. It's, you know, it's it, it's a snare. And he's saying, that's not true. He said, a cloud, this is, this is Iglesias, a cloud has been hanging over American politics. Congressional Republicans are willing to entertain ECA reform, not because they're ready to buck Trump, but precisely because they don't want to have to fight with Trump. If they are in the majority, in 2024, which is very likely, they don't want to be in a position where they need to either openly defy Trump or else help him stage a coup. They would like some kind of reform that keeps them out of the process so no more mobs show up at their workplace. So that is worth reading. And then I'd also just like to praise a piece by two friends of this podcast, Jonathan Rauch and Peter Weiner. They teamed up to write a piece, an op-ed in the New York Times called What's Happening on the Left is No Excuse for What's Happening on the Right. And sort of that could almost be the uh, anthem of Beg to Differ <laughs> uh, because they they identify a lot of the things that we always talk about, the illiberalism that is definitely in evidence on the left. But then they point out that uh, the many on the right are using this as an excuse to embrace outright authoritarianism, which is even more dangerous. So, Mona? Yes? Could I propose a sweepstakes? A sweepstakes? Okay. <laughs> yeah. How does it go? We will read on air the name of the first listener who correctly identifies the origin uh, of slow boring. Ooh. Okay. There it is. Consider the challenge issued. <laughs> and we will see you all next week. Next week.